0: Good morning, church. Great to see you and be able to open the Scriptures with you today. If you brought a Bible, you can turn to me to First Timothy 6, and if you don't have one underneath the seat in front of you, you should be able to find one. If uh, you are a parent, have a child up through fifth grade, uh, you are welcome to have them stay with you, or uh, we offer some age-specific teaching now. You can go out to the back patio where you'll find... Uh, some volunteers who'd be willing to help you. This morning, uh, our plan is to finish out the book of 1 Timothy we've been in the last four and a half months or so. And next week, uh, Lord willing, we'll begin uh, the first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis. We'll spend some time there. Uh, Randy is excited about that, so I'm glad about that. Um, There is in your uh, bulletin that you got a card Says beginnings on the front and on the back of that card, it's got the, uh, the date and then the passage that we'll look at uh, for now through uh, July. And so um, I'd encourage you to consider making it a habit to read the passage ahead of time. If you're able, consider even getting together with somebody else to read that uh, the week before, that'll help uh, on Sundays be ready to receive. If you've never read Genesis, There is some crazy stuff in there. So it is going to be a journey and uh, it will be fun. (laughs) Today, though, we'll be finishing um, chapter six of 1 Timothy. I hope you've enjoyed uh, this book as we've worked our way through it, growing closer to God and his people through the process. Um, I felt particularly thankful for you as a church family, as we've worked our way through this book, that's about godliness and the church because uh, you are a people who are quick to submit to what God says, you take seriously uh, living a godly life and embody so much of what we talked about the last uh, quarter of a year, so third of a year, so thank you for that. Um, Born in 1663 in Boston, Cotton Mather was by anyone's standards a brilliant man. He entered Harvard at age 11, was the youngest person at the time to ever have done so. Graduated a few years later and went on in his lifetime to author some 450 books. Have you read 450 picture books? (laughs) Let alone written that many, it's astonishing. In uh, 1702, he wrote what would become his most famous book. It's essentially a history of early colonial America. I imagine several of you were up this morning reading that already. Well, it's over a 1,000 pages in length, so we won't be reading it together this morning. However, I do want to show you a single sentence. It'll be on the screen. Religion begat prosperity, and the daughter devoured the mother. Religion begat prosperity, and the daughter devoured the mother. As Mather considered everything God had accomplished through the churches in early New England, he was filled with gratitude, but he also observed a troubling trend. As many people in the colonies began to grow in the christian faith then growing in that faith and applying the principles of christianity brought about an increase in wealth and as wealth increased the spiritual health of the colonies decreased as people trusted money more they trusted god less as Children were born and they grew up in a society more prosperous than the ones their parents had. Their temptation to prideful self-reliance grew exponentially. Mather viewed financial prosperity as the cannibal of the Christianity that brought about the wealth in the first place. Now, as Mather's implying in these quotes, And even more importantly, as the Bible itself explicitly teaches, if we proceed into more money, then we ought to do so with great caution, with awareness, fully awake to the temptations that will come. In our passage this morning, we'll find helpful tools to think about financial prosperity. We'll find that it's not wrong to have money, even lots of money, but it does come with dangers and opportunities. Look with me, if you would, in your Bible, starting in verse 17 of chapter 6. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainties of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. There to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. In the time we have this morning in the sermon, we'll concentrate on that paragraph because it adds content we haven't yet seen in First Timothy. But I do want to read the end because it's a, it's a summary of what much of the book has been about. Verse 20, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Now, uh, I don't know if that was a Freudian slip or not, but oddly, the deposit he's referring to is not money, it's the gospel. Guard the truth, guard the gospel that's been entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you." If you're curious to learn more about what he means there and you haven't been with us as we've worked our way through 1 Timothy, uh, I'd encourage you to take one of those Bibles from the seat underneath. And this week you could read one chapter in 1 Timothy each day. It'd take you no more than five, 10 minutes at the most, and that would flesh out for you what he's talking about. And uh, we are believers here, Christians, who see the truth as what God gives us in the scriptures, the way he reveals himself, that we might know him more and grow up in him. So check that out if it's something you haven't seen before. But let's concentrate our time today on verses 17, 18, and 19. One challenge we need to acknowledge before we dive into these verses is that our tendency would be to think 1 Timothy 6 might be talking about other people, but not about us. It might be a person to the right of you or to the left of you, but not for you right? That would be the tendency that we would have to think that way. The opening clause of verse 17 is not one most people use to self-designate. Imagine this morning wearing a name tag that said uh, simply, Billy, rich in this present age. Or uh, Sally, wealthier than you. Obviously, we don't talk like that, although we might think that way. So what is rich? What does it mean to be rich? That's actually a rather difficult question to answer, because rich relative to what? I mean, one community, it costs one price point to have somewhere to live, to put Gas in a vehicle, if you have it, to buy food. Prices simply aren't fixed. So what what is rich? What does rich mean? Well, friends, compared to the rest of the world, the vast majority of us could only rightly be described as rich. But relative to the few in America who make hundreds of millions of dollars, we would be thought of as poor. I think it's best to think of rich as referring to those who have an abundance beyond the normal experience of people who have ever lived. That's probably a basic way of thinking about it. The majority of us have um, ice in our drinks, A.C. and heat in our homes, cable on our TV's hot water in our showers, and lattes at will. These are conveniences we take for granted that most of the world, even today, know nothing of. They don't have any one of those things I named. Certainly, if you fall into the middle class, then relative to the world, you would be considered rich. But however much money you have, Let me encourage you today to not approach approach this passage as listening on behalf of the others, but rather listening on behalf of what you can glean from it that God might have for you, however much you have. And many of you are young. You're early on in life, and so you think of your earning years as primarily ahead of you and might hope for great resources. Well... I hope today you'll hear this through the lens of what you want to avoid and what you want to pursue. The main point of chapter six, verses 17 to 19 is that financially comfortable Christians must avoid particular pitfalls and embrace certain or particular opportunities. This passage gives us pitfalls to avoid and opportunities to embrace. We'll allow that to be our guide as we study together. So think with me first about pitfalls, and I'll just follow along in the passage. The first pitfall word to avoid is the tendency for financially comfortable people to become proud people. That's what's meant by the word haughty in verse 17 not H-O-T-T-I-E, but haughty, as in proud. Why is it so common for people with money to be proud? Why is that common? It's worth thinking about. Those with resources will be tempted to believe lies about their self-worth. That's part of what grounds uh, up the soil and puts fertilizer on it in which pride can grow is the tendency to believe lies about self-worth. For example, friend, your income level or the amount of stuff you own or the breadth of your investment does not offer a true assessment of your worth. Your Net worth renders you no more valuable than anybody else. In fact, the value of every human being is incalculable because every human being is made in the image of God. That's what makes people uniquely valuable. And the person who works minimum wage flipping burgers compared to the person who has tens of millions of dollars One is not more worthwhile or valuable before God than the other. Those with great financial wealth will face an uphill battle against pride because not only do they tend to find it difficult or do we tend to find it difficult not to draw up pride and self-worth from what we have, we tend to do the opposite and inflate it. Frankly, I think it's very, very easy to see how this happens, but difficult to recognize it in ourselves. If you've worked hard and you've been rewarded with raises because you've worked hard and that money then you've been responsible with, it's easy to look at others and think, they must not have worked as hard. If you've caught some breaks and opportunities aligned at just the right moment and you took them, then it's easy to think, well, I'm smarter than others. They too were given opportunities and didn't take them. It's their own fault. They are where they are. They have less because they are less. Church, we must see that our self-worth has literally nothing to do with our net worth. Run from a pride that would tell you otherwise. But it's not just this temptation toward pride we must be on guard against. It's also, as we follow along in the passage, it's the temptation to trust in our wealth. That's the second pitfall to avoid. The pitfall to trust in wealth. You see, financially comfortable people will be tempted to believe lies about their security, lies about their security. Paul says in the second half of verse 17 that we must not set our hope on the, you see it, uncertainty of riches. Do You think of money as uncertain? Do you think of riches as unable to be something that's dependable? I hope so because the scriptures tell us they are uncertain. If your savings account is growing, if your retirement is padded and compounding nicely, if your student loans are finally in the past, And if you have more or nicer possessions today than you did two years ago, it is the most natural thing in a fallen world to look at all that stuff and feel confident about your future. Because you'll think I've got everything I need and even more. We can entrust to wealth the confidence that it is our comfort and our security. It's just so easy to hope in money. But brothers and sisters, placing hope in money will lead to undesirable outcomes because it can't bear the weight of holding up hope. God is the only true hope bearer. Friends, money is a terrible source of lasting confidence. It's just not what it's for. The currency wasn't built for that. Consider, for example, Proverbs chapter 23. It'll be here on the screen in just a second. Proverbs 23 verses 4 and 5 say this. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eye lights, when your eyes light on it, it is gone. For it suddenly sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Obviously, that's a metaphorical way of saying you can't count on money. You cannot count on money. Do you recognize that you're one car accident away from never working again? That's money flying away. Do you see how fragile our economy is, I mean, it is hanging on by a thread and any little thing can disrupt it. And the economy is now global. We are so interconnected with the rest of the world, which just makes it all the more vulnerable to um, problems. Volatile politics and politicians make the economy less dependable. You can't place your hope in getting more wealth based on who gets voted in to office this November. That's not a dependable source. Wealth flies away. And friend, even now, as you are so kindly and godly-y sitting here, your apartment may be getting broken into I don't have any information about that. (laughs) But you may come home to an open door and rummaged stuff. And the things you've amassed, the things you hold dear, you may never hold them again. Wealth flies away. In fact, I would venture to say that riches are among the least dependable things to depend on. We do know, however, one who is, as Austin said, a rock. One who weathers every storm. One who is immovable, fixed, unchanging, certain. His name is God. James chapter 1 says about him, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Or Numbers twenty three nineteen: God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Friends, there is one to whom you can look. One who can bear the weight of your hope. One who is always dependable. Who is never too busy. Who will never get disinterested and move on to someone else. Friend, if you are in Christ, then God has set his affection on you from all eternity. You are his And your future is in his hands and is better than you could ever imagine. The scriptures do tell us to plan ahead and to prepare financially for things to come, but not because that's where our hope ought to lie. God does not change, you can count on him. He never wakes up on the wrong side of the bed. He never has a bad day and changed his mind. He never breaks a promise. Christian, he is committed to you eternally. Let your trust and confidence and hope settle in. Settle in on him. Everything that God wants to do, he is able to do because he's a God of infinite power. His government is always open. He never runs out of resources. He can be counted on. Church, our security is not in our money nor is it in our possessions, but it is in our God. God will richly supply us with what we need. And he's given us what we need, not merely to help us survive, But notice what the very end of verse 17 says. So easy to miss. God provides us with everything to enjoy. Now that's an interesting thought. Sometimes Christians can unfortunately become rather grumpy people. Have you noticed that? Have you ever met a few? Have you been them? We can begin to sort of turn our noses up arrogantly at those who have a lot and think, oh, if they were like me, then they would give that stuff away. Friend, the passage doesn't ever say it's wrong to have a lot. In fact, it says those who have a lot should see it as something to enjoy. I find that rather fascinating. God gives resources to us, not only to provide for our basic needs, but so that they could be a source of enjoyment. Think, for example, about eating. God could have made eating such a thing that it would be merely a chore one does to get through. Instead of that, he's filled our mouths and tongues with taste buds that as we eat, with each bite and it tasting good, we're reminded that he's a good God who gives good gifts. So if what you're eating doesn't taste good, knock it off. (laughs) Eat something different. Because God's given you taste buds that you might enjoy what you eat. The same thing is true of your resources. God's given you things to enjoy. That's what they're for. We Christians ought to be the most joyful people on the planet. Whether, frankly, we're just scraping by. Or whether we have a very large savings account. God gives you what he gives you that it might be an occasion each time you sit in a chair that feels good to thank him, to be reminded that he provides for his own. I love that end of verse 17. When we set our hope in God, not in our wealth, then we'll be content with the wealth that we have. And that will not rob us the opportunity to enjoy it, but rather will maximize the gifts we've been given to the glory of God. Church, let's set our hope in God. Let's turn from prideful thoughts about an inflated sense of self-worth and let's turn from a misplaced hope As we do those things, we'll be far better prepared to handle the wonderful opportunities that God provides those who have resources, particularly extra resources. If God's given you an atypical amount of money, then you have an outsized ability to be used by God to make an impact for Christ, both in the church and outside the church. That's what verses 18 and 19 tell us. I think they're worth reading again Would you hear them now that we understand what they're talking about? They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. What are the opportunities God gives those with resources? What are those occasions he provides the first one there's three of them listed in the passage the first one is just a general broad sort of junk drawer if you will it's that we're to do good that God gives resources to do good now why would he speak in such a general way well because there's millions of different ways resources can be used for good And so he's left open all of those by speaking very generally. But then he gets more specific. All Christians, especially financially comfortable Christians, are to be rich in good works. Friend, good works are first the good works that God does in us by his Spirit. Think of the fruit of the Spirit. And then good works are anything done That blesses another. We are to be rich in good works. And then finally, all Christians, but especially financially comfortable Christians, are to be generous and ready to share. All three of these particular opportunities and responsibilities the passage speaks of are about leveraging time, money, and possessions for the advancement of the mission of the church. Doing good. Being rich in good works and being generous and ready to share are simply ways of saying, love God, love people, make disciples, and help churches. Promote the spread of the gospel as means through which Christians grow up in Christ and more and more people get to hear about Him. These sorts of attitudes and actions, of course, stem from the awareness that we have been given the greatest gift of all in the gift of Jesus Christ. This, after all, is the one to whom we follow. Jesus is not only the means through which we live the Christian life, but he's also our example. He shows us what true humanity looks like and what new humanity is equipped to do. Think for example about the place in Ephesians 4 where he outlines some of the ways we're to live. Ephesians 4 verse 31 says this, "'Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you.'" Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Church, we are beloved children of God. Jesus gave himself so that we could be brought into the family of God. And therefore, we aim to walk in love. We give because Christ gave. We forgive because Christ forgave. We welcome because Christ welcomed. We share because Christ shared. Again, Jesus is not only the the means through which to live that way. He's the one we look to to show us how to live. And as we live, we live below our means so that we can Freeful, freely, joyfully give. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, that kind of living may sound as though it's something that's too good to be true, impossible, never actually uh, done by anyone that you've seen. Friends, this gives us a good opportunity to even get down into the very core essential message of Christianity. See, the Bible says that God is holy, he's powerful, he's truthful, he's eternal, he doesn't change. And he made people to live in his image. As the moon is a reflection of the light of the sun, people were to be a reflection of something of who God is. And yet, all people, chose to rebel against him and pursue their own life apart from him. Scriptures call that sin. But Jesus, uh, God was not content to leave us in our sin, and so he sent Christ. Jesus left heaven, came to earth, in order that he could live the life we were meant to live. If you want to learn more about him, I'd encourage you to take that Bible underneath the seat in front of you and read There's four books in the Bible that cover the 30 or so years that Jesus lived on earth. You can read about him in great detail. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are essentially biographies about Jesus. Mark is the shortest one, so start with it. Read what it says about Jesus and you'll see the most wonderful person who's ever lived. And each one of those Gospels give us the true account of how Jesus died on a cross, taking upon himself not only the weight of physical torture, but the weight of our sin. You see, he died as a substitute and then a few days later rose again in victory to demonstrate that that substitute was acceptable to to God friend this is what Christianity is about the Bible says lots of things but that's what the Bible is about Jesus gave of himself that we might partake of him come to know him and live in him and then and only then can we begin to share like he shared forgive like he forgave. Those are the resources through which we draw. I'll we'll encourage you today, if you've never trusted him, turning from sin, depending on him, that you would do so. Notice again, as you look back over these couple of verses, that very clearly, the text does not tell us It is inappropriate or ungodly to be wealthy. I mean, the paragraph is written to the rich and then never says, if you want to really be a good Christian, then you won't be rich anymore. No, it it simply outlines the ways in which those with a lot need to be careful not to depend on that and not to be prideful and instead how to live with the resources they have. And this paragraph is so immensely practical. At the end of verse 18, it says that they're to be generous and ready to share. An aspect of generosity is certainly giving money directly to your church to help fund the work of the gospel. Imagine what would happen if every one of the 240 or so church members here that we have did that, gave regularly, joyfully, liberally, not in any way constrained by what someone else tells them they need to do, but rather just giving as they're able to the glory of God. We are are coming off the strongest year we've had in many decades as a church thank you for that but imagine what we could get done for the glory of God if all of us gave like that giving in the offering is not the totality though of verse 18 verse 18 is talking about something much more broad It's talking about generosity and open-handedness in every way. Generosity is contributing your home, contributing your vacation time, contributing your bike. It's fairly easy to drop a donation in the black boxes as you leave and then think your Christian duty is done. But friends, God gives us opportunities all the time to be generous and ready to share. Generous and ready to share includes planning ahead for all kinds of generosity. It's making a little bit extra when you cook dinner so that at a moment's notice, you can invite a neighbor or a church member. It's keeping the back seat of your car clean so that when there's a family who needs a ride, you're able actually to open the door and get them inside. It's leaving margin in your budget so that when you hear of a fellow church member who, because of some unexpected medical bill, can't meet rent this month, you're able to do it with joy. It's leaving a little margin in your calendar to disciple a college student you meet around a particular issue that he or she voices a desire to grow in. It's inviting the international student you meet who's been here three weeks and is so anxious to get to know somebody from America and talk about Jesus. Friends, the phrase ready to share is not saying all you ever do all the time must be sharing as though you have the ability to do that. You don't. Your resources would run out and you got to sleep. It's being ready, ready to share as God provides opportunity. The word ready to share actually in Greek is a single word. It's the word fellowship. Fellowship is a a very churchy word, especially a Baptist word, and it's most often associated with food. Who likes to fellowship with food? Everyone, yes? But it's more than that. Fellowship is holding everything in common, living an open-handed life, so that as God has given to us, we would not... Uh, be hoarders but rather we'd be generous and ready to share Churchill mill this paragraph teaches something rather shocking it gives a, a it gives us a command in fact the command to be rich Now, before you think I've gone prosperity gospel on you, it says to be rich in good works. I pray as we end our study this morning that we would be a people who drink so deeply of the grace that God provides us in Christ. That that drinking deeply of the grace of God would cause us to each day when we wake up in prayer pry our grubby little fingers open one by one that today we would live open-handed lives. Ready to enjoy whatever God gives us and to live in a wise way which is being ready to share. This is one of the great marks of what a church does. And did you know that Part of the reason Christianity spread so rapidly in the ancient world was that Christians lived like that, open-handed. It's just so otherworldly that it causes people to take interest and to be drawn to the lifestyle of the Christian. It's the better way to live. Praise God that he's told us so clearly. Would you stand with me and let's pray? God, thanks for ending this book in such a practical way. I pray that you'd help each of us to grow in our understanding of how you would have us to be generous and ready to share. Thank you, God, that. Uh, there is, in fact, the reality that so many here already do this. And so I pray that those who are practicing it, that you would help them see the delight, the smile that that brings to your face. And we pray that the rest of us who've got some room to grow, that, God, we would not do so begrudgingly or in any way embarrassed, We're under constraint, but we would see that Christ has given to us, and therefore we give to each other to the glory of God. Thank you that you have helped us to see that you've given us what you've given us, that we might enjoy it. And so I pray today that as we leave, as we eat lunch, that we would have joy in it that as we go back home, that we would have joy in what we have and that a happy contentedness would mark your people called Church on Mill. We pray this in your name and for your glory.